There I was, in the cheese section of my local Kroger, perusing the assorted shredded cheeses, when I bumped into a former radio colleague and longtime friend, Joe. We discussed the poor choice of shopping two days before Christmas, and then he had some nice things to say about the podcast. Thanks, Joe. As I was about to depart to aisle 14, he mentioned that I should think about doing an episode on the tragic events that took place in Bath, Michigan in 1927. Even with the news of the Oxford, Michigan school shootings and working in a school myself, I hadn't thought about Bath in a long time, nor have I heard it mentioned recently. I wondered, as I was researching the episode, how many people even knew about it. It was nearly 100 years ago, well before social media and news feeds full of arguing about assault rifle availability. According to Education Week, there have been 34 school shootings this year. 68 people were either killed or injured during those shootings. Of those 68, 14 people died, 11 students and 3 adults. Since 2018, there have been a total of 92 shootings. 2020 saw a big dip in numbers thanks to COVID and virtual school. Unfortunately, that number has more than tripled now that things are returning to normal. Are they? They are returning to normal, right? As we'll learn, Bath wasn't a school shooting. But what happened left a scar on the local community, the state of Michigan, the country, and the world for years. Children are meant to feel safe in schools, surrounded by friends and caring teachers. It just so happens that I work in the same school district as Oxford High School. Never had one of these school shootings hit so close to home. Every school in the district was given the Friday at the end of that week off, and the following Monday was for teachers and staff only. People questioned why we'd have school off. We're 30 minutes away from Oxford. The problem was, reports of threats were coming in from students all over the place. And honestly, staff and students alike all over Southeast Michigan were worried. As a staff, we had meetings to attend, procedures to review, and things to figure out. Fifty-some adults all sitting in a room, most of which with children of our own, each with varying ideas and concerns. I'm a firm believer that if, God forbid, something were to occur at our school, each of our natural instincts would kick in. We can train with police officers all day, but in the end, most of us would do whatever it takes to keep the children safe. You can plan all day, and it's obviously a good idea to have some set procedures, but in the real world, instincts and split-second decisions are going to be the reality. Is my class of kids at a special, like art or music? Are a few of them in the bathroom? Are the kids at recess with noon aids? Do I have 14-year-olds or do I have 6-year-olds? Is there a special needs kid in the class who would have a hard time staying quiet? There's only so much planning you can do. Studying the case in Bath, Michigan, there was plenty of planning, just not by the school. No one expected what took place, and to this day, it's one of the largest single-day loss-of-life events to ever happen at a school in the world. Let's get to it. Episode 32, Bloodbath. The definition of a rampage killer is defined as the attempted killing of multiple persons, at least partially in public space, by a single physically present perpetrator using potentially deadly weapons in a single event without any cooling off period. 
In the 1960s, there was one rampage killing of students. Charles Whitman climbed the tower at the University of Texas at Austin in 1966 and began shooting random targets. The 1970s saw just one school shooting. There were two in the 80s and four in the 90s. That decade ended with the Columbine massacre that seemingly got the ball rolling for a disastrous 2000 to 2009 that saw five shootings and 51 deaths. From 2010 to 2019, there were a total of six rampage killings. The average number of deaths began to rise and the shooters became more brazen and dangerous. Since then, November 30th's case in Oxford Township, Michigan has been the only school-related event classified as a rampage killing in the United States. Maybe this will be the decade that numbers start to decline. But what about before 1966? From 1928 to 1965, there were zero rampage killings in the United States. Why? I'm not sure anyone knows. But maybe what happened in 1927 was bad enough that it swayed anyone from trying anything at a school for nearly 40 years. Andrew Philip Kehoe was born on February 1, 1872, in Tecumseh, Michigan. Tecumseh is a small city near the Ohio border closer to Toledo than Detroit. The city is named after the Shawnee Chief Tecumseh, whom we discussed in the last episode, episode 31, the Nain Rouge. It's famous for being the place where General Custer's horse, Don Juan, is buried. And that's about it. Andrew was the first boy born into the family after three girls. In total, his father, Philip, had at least eight children, reports vary, from three different women. Philip's first wife, Mary Mellon, passed away in 1861 at the age of 28. They had only one child together, a girl named Lydia, in 1860. His second wife, Mary McGovern, gave birth to two more girls, Agnes in 1864 and Catherine in 1867. Andrew, the first boy, was born in 1872, followed by his only brother, Louis, in 1874. Two more sisters, Margaret and Ella, were born the following two years. Andrew Kehoe was considered to be an intelligent child who loved coming up with electrical inventions that would occasionally be used on the family farm. As Kehoe reached double digits, his mother's health began to decline. Mary suffered from a disease of the nervous system, and by the time he became a teenager, she was nearly bedridden. Kehoe attended Tecumseh High School, where he found himself at the head of the physics class. He graduated in 1889 and would soon lose his mom. On November 5, 1890, a now completely paralyzed Mary passed away. Kehoe's father, Philip, now nearly 60 years old, didn't wait long before marrying for the third time. Andrew's new stepmom was closer to his age than his father's, but like Philip, she was widowed with children of her own. It's reported that Kehoe and his stepmother, Frances Wilder, did not get along. At all. To get away from her, Andrew Kehoe packed up his belongings and headed north to the Michigan State Agricultural College in East Lansing. At what is now Michigan State University, he studied electrical engineering. It was there where he met his future wife, Nellie Price. It's interesting to note that there are no records of Kehoe attending the college, which has left some to wonder what he was really doing at that time. Over the next 10 years, little is known about Kehoe. He supposedly graduated college and then left for Iowa where he took on a job hanging power lines. Then he was hired to be an electrician in St. Louis, Missouri. A Kansas City Times newspaper article from May 5, 1909 puts him working with the Western Union Telegraph Company. In the article, it's revealed that he is one of the pallbearers at a co-worker's funeral. 
So it's likely that he was working for Western Union in 1911, where he suffered a severe head injury in a fall while he was working. Kehoe was in a coma for two weeks, but recovered. Some think that the fall is what changed him. After the injury, Kehoe returned home to live with his father and stepmother, Francis. On September 17th of 1911, Francis was severely burned when the family's new stove exploded as she was attempting to light it. The oil covered her and quickly caught fire. Kehoe reacted by dousing his stepmother with water from a nearby bucket. Because the fire was oil-based, the water served as a catalyst. On their own, oils and grease are not flammable, but when they reach their flashpoint, they ignite quickly and burn hot. Water is the last thing you want to add in. Philip's third and final wife, and Andrew's nemesis, died a week later from her injuries. The autopsy listed the cause of death as burn from stove. An investigation revealed that the stove may have been tampered with. On Tuesday, May 14, 1912, the now 40-year-old Andrew Kehoe wed the woman he met while in college. Nellie Price was four years younger than Kehoe, and had also never married. Nellie was the daughter of a wealthy Lansing family. They had a low-key Tuesday morning wedding, followed by breakfast, served at her parents' estate in Lansing. After spending some time with her family, the newlyweds moved back south to Tecumseh. On January 8th of 1915, at the age of 81, Andrew's father, Philip, passed away. He'd long suffered from rheumatoid arthritis, which contributed to his death. On the death certificate, it's listed that he died from paralysis agitans, which is more commonly known as Parkinson's disease. In 1919, the couple bought a 185-acre farm just outside the village of Bath, Michigan, which is just over 10 miles north of Lansing. The farm had belonged to Nellie's aunt. It was sold to the couple for $12,000, which is the equivalent to $322,000 today. Kehoe paid $6,000 in cash up front and then took out a $6,000 mortgage for the other half. In Bath, Kehoe's neighbors thought of him as a highly intelligent man with a short fuse especially for anyone who saw things differently than he did. Some of his neighbors thought it odd that Kehoe, even when farming, was always dressed to the nines. If his shirt or trousers became soiled, he'd change them. Word also spread around the small bath community that Kehoe could be unkind to animals. He openly spoke of killing his stepsister's cat and shooting a neighbor's dog. He once became so angry at a horse of his that was being stubborn that he beat the horse to death. According to the book The Bath School Disaster, published by the Bath School Museum Committee and written by a neighbor of Kehoe's, he never farmed his land as other farmers did. He was more concerned with tinkering and fixing machinery than the actual farming. As the decade wore on, neighbors would notice that he stopped farming altogether. In 1922, the Bath School tax was $12.26 on a $1,000 valuation. Kehoe started to gripe to anyone that would listen about his high taxes. A year later, after the school board announced that there needed to be upgrades to the athletic field and school itself, the taxes went up to $18.80. Kehoe was not happy. Despite the tax hike affecting everyone, he felt that he was more hurt than anyone. With his property being 10 times the $1,000 valuation, his taxes were high, but no one had forced him to buy the property. It was during that time that neighbors remember hearing Kehoe say that if he was on the school board, he would cut down the expenses. Well, lo and behold, Kehoe was elected treasurer of the Bath Consolidated School Board in 1924, 
While on the board, he continually fought for lower taxes and often argued with the other board members, constantly voting against them or calling for adjournment when things weren't going his way. The man he despised the most was the superintendent, Emery Huck, whom he felt was awful with money. In 1925, while still serving on the school board, Kehoe was appointed as the Bath Township Clerk in 1925 for a short time after the former clerk passed away. The following election in the spring of 1926, he was defeated in the vote and became embarrassed and angered by his public defeat. Around this time, his wife Nellie was chronically ill with tuberculosis. There was no treatment for it back then, and she experienced frequent hospital stays and mounting medical bills. Plummeting crop prices combined with his lack of interest in farming led Kehoe to stop making mortgage and insurance payments. His home and farm were facing foreclosure. That leads us to 1927. Set the scene of Bath, Michigan in 1927. Here's a quote from author Arnie Bernstein, who wrote 2009's Bath Massacre, America's first school bombing. He said, Bath is literally one of those places without a stoplight, just a cross street with a four-way stop sign. The majority of Bath residents in 1927 were farmers, though there were also tradesmen. The one street downtown area had a grocery store, a pharmacy, a blacksmith slash auto repair shop, a community hall for recreation and social gatherings, and of course, the consolidated school that overlooked everything from the town center. We think of 1927 as the height of the Jazz Age. Even though Al Capone had a summer cottage not far from Bath, the scandal and wild ways of the Roaring Twenties roared well outside of Bath. In fact, most residents still did not have homes wired for electricity. Wanting to stay close to the school, which he blamed for many of his woes, Kehoe took on a part-time job as the Bath Consolidated School's repairman. It was a gorgeous school, all things considered, fancier than many of the schools in small towns like Bath at that time. After renovation, the school opened in 1922 and served students from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. There weren't many people in the area who didn't have at least one child or nephew or niece or grandchild that went to the school. During the 1927 school year, roughly 270 students were in attendance. What no one seemed to know was that Andrew Kehoe was buying up dynamite and pyrotol at an alarming rate. Ever the forward thinker, Kehoe made his purchases at different locations so as to not draw suspicion. Pyrotol was an explosive made up of smokeless powder, sodium nitrate, and nitroglycerin. It was common for a short time after World War I and made available to American farmers for agricultural purposes. He obtained everything legally. Kehoe hid some away at his home, but used his handyman status at the school to stash piles of the explosives underneath where no one would find it. By the time May rolled around and the end of the school year neared, he had wrapped nearly 1,000 pounds of bombs in mesh wiring and plastered them to the school's basement ceiling. On Monday, May 16th of 1927, one of Bath Consolidated's first grade teachers asked Kehoe if her students could have a picnic on his property on that Thursday, the 19th. Kehoe agreed to let the class visit, but told her it would be best for her to do it on Tuesday, the 17th, due to a rainy weather report he'd heard for the end of the week. Later on that Monday, Kehoe's wife, Nellie, was discharged from Lansing St. Lawrence Hospital. 
At some point between the evening of May 16th and the morning of Wednesday, May 18th, Kehoe struck her violently in the head with an unidentified object, killing her. On the 17th, Kehoe got to tearing down the farm. If he couldn't have it, no one would. He reportedly cut the wire fences all around the farm and placed dynamite in his tractor. All that remained of the farm animals at the time were two horses. He tied them up in the barn and wrapped their hooves together in wire so that they couldn't escape. Kehoe collected all the various pieces of lumber that were strewn across the farm and placed them into the tool shed. He girdled all the small shade trees and sawed the grapevines off near the base. Interesting tidbit, girdling, also called ring barking, is the complete removal of the bark from around the entire circumference of either a branch or trunk of a woody plant. Girdling results in the death of the area above the girdle over time. Maybe you already knew that. I didn't. Afterwards, he lined the buildings on his property with, quote, enough dynamite to blow up the county. On the morning of May 18th, he moved the body of his wife via wheelbarrow to one of the farm's outbuildings. He was notified by a school employee that the boiler was not working at the school. He arrived at the school shortly after 7.25 a.m. An employee at the school noted that he appeared to be flustered and in a hurry to leave. Once back home, he set off the dynamite and pyrotol. This was around 8.45 a.m. Initial explosions sent debris as far as neighboring farms. It also drew the attention of a group of neighbors who jumped into a car and sped to the Kehoe farm. They watched as Kehoe drove his Ford pickup towards them through the smoke. He pulled up next to them and got out of the truck. He had a funnel in his gas tank, which he took out and replaced with the cap. The group of neighbors were about to walk into the burning remains of the house to find Kehoe's wife when he stopped them. You are friends of mine, he told them. Don't go in there. Go down to the school. Kehoe started up his truck and drove off towards Bath. Moments earlier, around the same time his farm exploded, if things had gone according to plan, the timed explosives at the school would have detonated as well. Nearly half of it did. The explosion was massive, and the entire north wing of the school collapsed down onto itself. The second story fell onto the first, and the entire wing came down. Within minutes, through the screams and debris, many of Bath's men and women were rushing into the remains to help where they could, removing children and teachers trapped under the rubble. One of those men was Glenn Smith. Glenn was only 26 years old when he was appointed to Bath Township's postmaster position. Now, seven years later, after losing his own child at the age of three, he was putting his life on the line to help as many school children as he could. After some time, he decided that he needed to catch his breath, and he walked to the sidewalk in front of the school where he met with his 74-year-old father-in-law, Nelson McFerrin. There, the two of them spoke with Superintendent Emery Huck, assessing the situation, when Kehoe pulled up in his Ford pickup. According to author Arnie Bernstein, in an interview with NPR, the superintendent approached Kehoe and said, We need your truck. We need to go get ladders. We need to go get ropes. Kehoe just looked at him and said, Okay, I'll take you with me. That's when Kehoe caused the third and final explosion. The only time a gun was used in the school massacre was when Kehoe turned and fired a bullet into his truck that, unbeknownst to anyone, was full of dynamite and scrap metal. Kehoe had planned this out as well. Like a pipe bomb, an explosion inside of the vehicle would send all the nuts and bolts and whatever else he had stuck inside flying through the air. Maximum damage. The explosion killed Kehoe and Huck instantly, 
and took the lives of Glenn Smith, his father-in-law, and an eight-year-old student who had nearly survived the school bombing just minutes before. A block down the street, a woman was standing on the sidewalk with her baby in her arms and another child by her side. A piece of metal from the truck hit her in the eye, damaging the eye and breaking the bone above. Something else hit her on the top of the head, tearing another deep hole. She'd be in the hospital for nearly a month after, losing a portion of her brain. She survived, but was never the same. Hundreds of men and women lined the streets as word spread of the disaster. The front lawn of the school looked like a battlefield. Ambulances rushed in and out. Bodies lay in a line on the grass covered in sheets as nervous parents tried to find their children. When all was said and done, 38 students ranging in age from 2nd graders to 6th graders had perished. Two young female teachers, one of which was found trying to shield two children, had died as well. Adding in the three adults that died in the truck explosion, one young girl who fought for her life for three months, and Kehoe's wife, Nellie, Andrew Kehoe, murdered 44 people. Back at the farm, as police and neighbors sifted through the remains, someone noticed a wood plank shoved into a piece of Kehoe's fence. On it, Kehoe had etched the words, Criminals are made, not born. It was his final slap in the face of Bath residents. He was saying, Look what you made me do. In what would become one of the lone pieces of good news, investigators found nearly 700 additional pounds of explosives under the rest of the school. Something kept it from exploding, which, if it had, would have taken out the entire school and a good chunk of bath. Initially, the bombing was on the front page of every newspaper in the country. Support and donations were pouring into bath. However, two days later, Charles Lindbergh flew the Spirit of St. Louis in the first nonstop flight from New York City to Paris. The news from Bath got pushed to the second page and became forgotten about. For the people of Bath, who hadn't even obtained electricity yet, this was probably for the best. They could recover and rebuild in peace without the media stalking their every move. Michigan's governor at the time, Fred Green, and his wife, Helen, were some of the first to drive to Bath once they heard of the tragedy. Together, they helped dig through the rubble for survivors. The governor, who made a fortune in the furniture industry, was so moved by the event that he offered to pay for any burials for families who couldn't afford it. State Senator James Cousins, who had been an early investor in Ford Motor Company, stepped in and donated $75,000 for a new school to be built on the grounds of the Bath Consolidated School. The James Cousins School opened in 1928 and remained until 1975. In less positive news, in Michigan, the KKK was a growing movement. Its big issues in the 1920s were with immigrants and Catholics. Once it was known that Kehoe was a Roman Catholic, the KKK had millions of leaflets printed that blamed Kehoe's action on his Catholic upbringing. In a twist of irony, he had stopped going to church and forbade his wife from going when they tried to bill him $400 for his part in building a new sanctuary. In the end, what we do know is that Andrew Kehoe was mentally ill, in some fashion, and never sought out or received help. His neighbors thought him to be potentially suicidal in the days before the bombings. When it comes to mass casualties in a school setting, as I mentioned earlier, it wouldn't happen again for almost 40 years. That's when Charles Whitman first killed his wife and mother and then climbed the UT Austin clock tower and began shooting people indiscriminately. Stressors included his parents separating, trouble at home, and a court-martial while in the Marines. In his suicide note, Whitman wrote, I do not quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. 
Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I do not really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I cannot recall when it started, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur, and it requires a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. One month shy of the 80-year anniversary of the Bath Massacre, Sung Hee Jo, a Virginia Tech student, carried out what was at the time the deadliest shooting rampage in U.S. history when he gunned down 32 students and faculty members. In middle school, he was diagnosed with a severe anxiety disorder with selective mutism as well as major depressive disorder. In a note investigators found in his room, he wrote, You caused me to do this. Who was the you in this case? We can assume it's the same you that Andrew Kehoe meant when he left the sign hanging on his fence, criminals are made, not born. Blaming others is an easy out for people who struggle with mental illness. After 32 episodes, I hope you know that I'm not a person who likes to get on his soapbox and preach. I hope you also know that I am a person who suffers from ADHD, OCD, and severe depression. So this stuff interests me, and I hope it interests you as well. People speak all the time about what schools need to do to better protect kids. One thing is for certain, as these events continue to become more commonplace, kids and adults need help. More school psychiatrists, more social-emotional aids, more safe spaces to tell people what's going on, with attentive adults willing to listen and lend a hand or an ear. The bath disaster happened at a time when none of that was readily available, and mental illness meant you were either bad enough to move into a psych hospital or ignored. Something more than taxes drove Andrew Kehoe to do what he did, and we will probably never be able to do anything more than speculate. I end every episode the same way. Be good to one another. And I mean it. You never know what someone else is going through, unless you ask. There are some amazing, horrific photos that go along with this story. I'll post as many as I can on my website, curator135.com. Check them out if you want to get a glimpse into an event in history that is rarely discussed. The information I gathered for this episode came from dozens of places, from blogs to news stories to newspaper clippings from around that time. I'd also like to recommend three great books that are out there, in case you want to get deeper into the story. Bath Massacre by Arnie Bernstein, released in 2009. Maniac by Harold Schechter, released in 2021. And The Bath School Disaster by Monty J. Ellsworth, originally penned in the late 1920s. Well, friends, it's officially been a year since this all started. Thank you to all the listeners, whether you checked out one episode or all of them. It means the world to me. I couldn't be any more excited than I am to find out what's going to unfold in year two. I also want to thank Jim D. and David M., who are now junior varsity curators, as well as David O., who is a varsity curator. All three became supporting patrons in December and will start receiving various show-related perks and surprises in the new year. If you would like to support the podcast, visit my Patreon page by searching the Patreon site or following the link on my website. In what was a relatively cruddy year for many of us, thank you for hanging out with me and listening to the podcast. I couldn't and wouldn't do it without you. Happy New Year to you and yours. Be safe out there. And be good to one another. And be creative. The world needs you.
one, four, three.